Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon that was once preached by Charles Spurgeon. This message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman. It's known as Spurgeon's Gems. Today's message is from Volume 1. It's called Free Will, a Slave. Free Will, a Slave. The text is John 540, and you will not come to me that you might have life. Now, this is one of the great guns of the Arminians, mounted upon the top of their walls and often discharged with terrible noise against those poor Christians called Calvinists. <laughs> well, I intend to spike the gun this morning, or rather to turn it on the enemy, for it was never theirs. It was never cast at their foundry at all, but was intended to teach the very opposite to that which they assert. Usually, when the text is taken, the divisions are, first, that man has a will, secondly, that he is entirely free, and thirdly, that men must make themselves willing to come to Christ. Otherwise, they will not be saved. Now, we shall have no such divisions, but we will endeavor to take a more calm look at the text, not because there happens to be the words will or will not in it, run away with the conclusion that it teaches the doctrine of free will. It has already been proved beyond all controversy that free will is nonsense. Freedom cannot belong to will any more than ponderability can belong to electricity. They are altogether different things. Free agency we may believe in, but free will is simply ridiculous. The will is well known by all to be directed by the understanding, to be moved by motives, to be guided by other parts of the soul, and to be a, a secondary thing. Philosophy and religion both discard at once the very thought of free will. And I will go as far as Martin Luther in that strong assertion of his where he says, If any man doth ascribe aught of salvation, even the very least, to the free will of man, he knoweth nothing of grace, and he hath not learned Jesus Christ aright. Well, it may seem a harsh sentiment, but he who in his soul believes that man does of his own free will turn to God cannot have been taught of God. For that is one of the first principles taught us when God begins with us that we have neither will nor power, but that he gives both, that he is Alpha and Omega in the salvation of men. Our four points this morning shall be, first, that every man is dead, because it says, you will not come to me that you might have life. Secondly, that there is life in Jesus Christ. You will not come to me that you might have life. Thirdly, that there is life in Christ Jesus for every one that comes for it. You will not come to me that you might have life, implying that all who go will have life. And fourthly, the gist of the text lies here, that no man by nature ever will come to Christ. For the text says, you will not come to me that you might have life. 
So far from asserting that men of their own wills ever do such a thing, it boldly and flatly denies it and says, You will not come to me that you might have life. My beloved, I am almost ready to exclaim, Have all free willers no knowledge that they dare to run in the teeth of inspiration? Have all those that deny the doctrine of grace no sense? Have they so departed from God that they rest this to prove free will? Whereas the text says, You will not come to me that you might have life. Well, first then, our text implies that men, by nature, are dead. No being needs to go after life if he has life in himself. The text speaks very strongly when it says, You will not come to me that you might have life. Though it says it not in words, yet it does in effect affirm that men need a life more than they have themselves. My hearers, we are all dead unless we have been begotten unto a lively hope. First, we are, all of us, by nature, legally dead. In the day you eat thereof, you shall die the death, said God to Adam. And though Adam did not die in that moment naturally, he died legally. That is to say, death was recorded against him. As soon as at the Old Bailey the judge puts on the black cap and pronounces the sentence, the man is reckoned to be dead at law. Though perhaps a month may intervene before he is brought on the scaffold to endure the sentence of the law, yet the law looks upon him as a dead man. It is impossible for him to transact anything. He cannot inherit. He cannot bequeath. He is nothing. He is a dead man. The country considers him not as being alive at all. There is an election. He is not asked for his vote because he is considered as dead. He is shut up in his condemned cell and he is, he is dead. Ah, and you ungodly sinners who have never had life in Christ, you are alive this morning by reprieve. But do you know that you are legally dead? That God considers you as such? That in the day when your father Adam touched the fruit, and when you yourselves did sin, God, the eternal judge, put on the black cap and condemned you. You talk mightily of your own standing and goodness and morality. Where is it? Scripture says you are condemned already. You are not to wait to be condemned at the judgment day. That will be the execution of the sentence, you are condemned already. In the moment you sinned, your names were all written in the black book of justice. Everyone was then sentenced by God to death, unless he found a substitute in the person of Christ for his sins. What would you think if you were to go into the old Bailey and see the condemned culprit sitting in his cell laughing and merry? You would say, the man's a fool, for he's condemned and is to be executed, yet how merry he is. Ah, and how foolish is the worldly man who, while sentence is recorded against him, lives in merriment and mirth. Do you think the sentence of God is of no effect? 
Think you that your sin, which is written with an iron pen on the rocks forever, has no horrors in it? God has said you are condemned already. If you would but feel this, it would mingle bitters in your sweet cups of joy. Your dances would be stopped, your laughter quenched in sighing, if you would recollect that you are condemned already. We ought all to weep, if we lay this to our souls, that by nature we have no life in God's sight. We are actually positively condemned. Death is recorded against us, and we are considered in ourselves now, in God's sight, as much dead as if we were actually cast into hell. We are condemned here by sin. We do not yet suffer the penalty of it. But it is written against us, and we are legally dead, nor can we find life unless we find legal life in the person of Christ, of which uh, more by and by. Uh, But besides being legally dead, we are also spiritually dead. For not only did the sentence pass in the book, but it passed in the heart. It entered the conscience. It operated on the soul, on the judgment, on the imagination, and on everything In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, was not only fulfilled by the sentence recorded, but by something which took place in Adam. Just as in a certain moment when this body shall die, the blood stops, the pulse ceases, the breath no longer comes from the lungs, so in the day that Adam ate that fruit, his soul died. His imagination lost its mighty power to climb into celestial things and see heaven. His will lost its power always to choose that which is good. His judgment lost all ability to judge between right and wrong decidedly and infallibly. Though something was retained in conscience, his memory became tainted, liable to hold evil things and let righteous things glide away. Every power of his ceased as to its moral vitality. Goodness was the vitality of his powers that departed. Virtue, holiness, integrity, these were the the life of man. But when these departed, man became dead. And now every man, as far as spiritual things are concerned, is dead in trespasses and sins spiritually. Nor is the soul less dead in a carnal man than the body is when committed to the grave. It is actually and positively dead. Not by a metaphor, for Paul speaks not in metaphor when he affirms, You has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. But my hearers, again I I would that I could preach to your hearts concerning this subject. It was bad enough when I described death as having been recorded, but now I speak of it as having actually taken place in your hearts. You are not what you once were. You are not what you were in Adam, not what you were created. Man was made pure and holy. You are not the perfect creatures of which some boast. You are altogether fallen. You have gone out of the way. You have become corrupt and filthy. 
Oh, listen not to the siren song of those who tell you of your moral dignity and your mighty elevation in matters of salvation. You are not perfect. That great word ruin is written on your heart and death is stamped upon your spirit. Do not conceive, O oh moral man, that you will be able to stand before God in your morality, for you are nothing but a carcass embalmed in legality, a corpse arrayed in some fine robes, but still corrupt in God's sight. And think not, O oh, you possessor of natural religion, that you may, by your own might and power, make yourself acceptable to God. Why, man, you are dead, and you may array the dead as gloriously as you please, but still it would be a solemn mockery. There lies Queen Cleopatra. Put the crown upon her head, deck her in royal robes, let her sit in state, but what a cold chill runs through you when you pass by her. She is fair now, even in her death, but how horrible it is to stand by the side even of a dead queen celebrated for her majestic beauty. So you may be glorious in your beauty, fair and amiable and lovely. You may put the crown of honesty upon your head and wear about you all the garments of uprightness. But unless God has quickened you, O oh man, unless the Spirit has had dealings with your soul, you are in God's sight as obnoxious as the chilly corpse is to yourself. You would not choose to live with a corpse sitting at your table, nor does God love that you should be in his sight a corpse. He is angry with you every day, for you are in sin, you are in death. Oh, believe this. Take it to your soul and appropriate it, for it is most true that you are dead, spiritually as well as legally. And then the third kind of death is the consummation of, of the other two. It is eternal death. It is the execution of the legal sentence. It is the consummation of the spiritual death. Eternal death is the death of the soul. It takes place after the body has been laid in the grave, after the soul has departed from it. If legal death be terrible, it is because of its consequences. And if spiritual death be dreadful, it is because of that which shall succeed it. The two deaths of which we have spoken are the roots, and that death which is to come is the flower thereof. Oh, had I words that I might this morning attempt to depict to you what eternal death is. The soul has come before its maker. The book has been opened. The sentence has been uttered. Depart, ye cursed. Those words have shaken the universe and made the very spheres dim with the frown of the Creator. The soul has departed to the depths where it is to dwell with others in eternal death. Oh, how horrible is its position now. Its bed is a bed of flame. The sights it sees are murdering ones that frighten its spirit. The sounds it hears are shrieks and wails and moans and groans. All that its body knows is the infliction of miserable pain. It has the possession of unutterable woe, of unmitigated misery. The soul looks up. Hope is extinct. It is gone. 
It looks downward in dread and fear. Remorse has possessed its soul. It looks on the right hand and the adamantine walls of fate keep it within its limits of torture. It looks on the left, and there the rampart of blazing fire forbids the ceiling ladder of even a dreamy speculation of escape. It looks within and seeks for consolation there, but a gnawing worm has entered into the soul. It looks about it. It has no friends to aid, no comforters, but tormentors in abundance. It knows naught of hope of deliverance. It has heard the everlasting key of destiny turning in its awful wards, and it has seen God take that key and hurl it down into the depth of eternity never to be found again. It hopes not. It knows no escape. It guesses not of deliverance. It pants for death, but death is too much its foe to be there. It longs that non-existence would swallow it up, but this eternal death is worse than annihilation. It pants for extermination as the laborer for his Sabbath. It longs that it might be swallowed up in nothingness, just as would the galley slave long for freedom, but it comes not. It is eternally dead. When eternity shall have rolled round multitudes of its everlasting cycles, it shall still be dead. Forever knows no end. Eternity cannot be spelled except in eternity. Still the soul sees written o'er its head, Thou art damned forever. It hears howlings that are to be perpetual. It sees flames which are unquenchable. It knows pain that are unmitigated. It hears a sentence that rolls not like the thunder of earth, which soon is hushed, but onward, 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 shaking the echoes of eternity, making thousands of years shake again with the horrid thunder of its dreadful sounds. Depart, 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 you cursed. This is the eternal death. But secondly, in Christ Jesus there is life, for he says, you will not come to me that ye may have life. There is no life in God the Father for a sinner. There is no life in God the Spirit for a sinner apart from Jesus. The life of a sinner is in Christ. If you take the Father away, though he loves his elect and decrees that they shall live, yet life is only in his Son. If you take God the Spirit away from Jesus Christ, though it is the Spirit that gives us spiritual life, yet it is life in Christ, life in the Son. We dare not and, and cannot apply in the first place either to God the Father or God the Holy Spirit for spiritual life. The first thing we are led to do when God brings us out of Egypt is to eat the Passover, the very first thing. The first means whereby we get life is by feeding upon the flesh and blood of the Son of God, living in Him, trusting on Him, believing in His grace and power. Our second thought was, there is life in Christ. We will show you there are three kinds of life in Christ, as there are three kinds of death. 
First, there is legal life in Christ, just as every man by nature, considered in Adam, had a sentence of condemnation passed on him in the moment of Adam's sin, and more especially in the moment of his own first transgression. So I, if I am a believer, and you, if you trust in Christ, have had a legal sentence of acquittal passed on us through what Jesus Christ has done. Oh, condemned sinner, you may be sitting this morning condemned like the prisoner in Newgate, but ere this day has passed away, you may be as clear from guilt as the angels above. There is such a thing as legal life in Christ, and blessed be God, some of us enjoy it. We know our sins are pardoned because Christ suffered punishment for them. We know that we never can be punished ourselves, for Christ suffered in our stead. The Passover is slain for us. The lintel and doorpost have been sprinkled, and the destroying angel can never touch us. For us there is no hell, although it blaze with terrible flames. Let Tophet be prepared of old. Let its pile be wood and much smoke. We never can go there. Christ died for us in our stead. What if there be racks of horrid torture? What if there be a sentence producing most horrible reverberations of thundering sounds, yet neither rack nor dungeon nor thunder are for us? In Christ Jesus we are now delivered. There is therefore now no condemnation unto us who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Sinner, are you legally condemned this morning? Do you feel that? Then let me tell you that faith in Christ will give you a knowledge of your legal acquittal. Beloved, it is no fancy that we are condemned for our sins. It is a reality. And so it is no fancy we are acquitted. That is a reality. A man about to be hanged, if he received a full pardon, would feel it a great reality. He would say, I have a full pardon. I cannot be touched now. And that's just how I feel. As the poet says, Now freed from sin, I walk at large. The Savior's blood's my full discharge. At his dear feet content I lay. A sinner saved and homage pay. Brethren, we have gained legal life in Christ and such legal life that we cannot lose it. The sentence has gone against us once. Now it has gone out for us. It is written, There is now no condemnation, and that now will do as well for me in 50 years as it does now. Whatever time we live in, it will still be written, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Well, then secondly, there is spiritual life in Christ Jesus. As the man is spiritually dead, God has spiritual life for him, for there is not a need which is not supplied by Jesus. There is not an emptiness in the heart which Christ cannot fill. There is not a desolation which he cannot people. There is not a desert which he cannot make to blossom as the rose. Oh, you, you dead sinners, spiritually dead. There is life in Christ Jesus. For we have seen, yes, these eyes have seen, the dead live again. 
We have known the man whose soul was utterly corrupt by the power of God seek after righteousness. We have known the man whose views were carnal, whose lusts were mighty, whose passions were strong. Suddenly, by irresistible might from heaven, consecrate himself to Christ and become a child of Jesus. We know that there is life in Christ Jesus of a spiritual order. Yea, more, we ourselves in our own persons have felt that there is spiritual life. Well can we remember when we sat in the house of prayer, as dead as the very seat on which we sat, we had listened for a long, long while to the sound of the gospel, but no effect followed. And when suddenly, as if our ears had been opened by the fingers of some mighty angel, a sound entered into our heart. We thought we heard Jesus saying, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. An irresistible hand put itself on our heart and crushed a prayer out of it. We never had a prayer before like that. We cried, O oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Some of us for months felt a hand pressing us as if we had been grasped in a vice and our souls bled drops of anguish. That misery was a sign of coming life. Persons, when they are being drowned, do not feel the pain so much as while they are being restored. Oh, we recollect those pains, those groans, that living strife which our soul had when it came to Christ. Ah, we can recollect the giving of our spiritual life as easily as could a man his restoration from the grave. We can suppose Lazarus to have remembered his resurrection, though not all the circumstances of it. And so we, although we have forgotten a great deal, do recollect our giving ourselves to Christ. We can say to every sinner, however dead, there is life in Christ Jesus. Though you may be rotten and corrupt in your grave, he who has raised Lazarus has raised us. And he can say even to you, Lazarus, Come forth. In the third place, there is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And oh, if eternal death be terrible, eternal life is blessed. For he has said, Where I am, there shall my people be. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given unto me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. I give unto my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. Now, any Arminian that would preach from that text must buy a pair of India rubber lips, for I am sure he would need to stretch his mouth amazingly. He would never be able to speak the whole truth without winding about it a most mysterious manner. Eternal life, not a life which they are to lose, but eternal life. If I lost life in Adam, <clears throat> I gained it in Christ. If I lost myself forever, I find myself forever in Jesus Christ. Eternal life. Oh, blessed thought. Our eyes will sparkle with joy and our souls burn with ecstasy in the thought that we have eternal life. Be quenched, you stars. Let God put his finger on you, but my soul will live in bliss and joy. Put your eye out 
O sun, but my eye shall see the king in his beauty, when your eye shall no more make the green earth laugh. And moon, be you turned into blood, but my blood shall ne'er be turned to nothingness. This spirit shall exist when you have ceased to be, and you, great world, you may all subside, just as a moment's foam subsides upon the waves that bears it. But I shall have eternal life. O oh, time, you may see giant mountains dead and hidden in their graves. You may see the stars like figs, too ripe, falling from the tree, but you shall never, never see my spirit dead. Well, we'll continue this message, points three and four, next time with Charles Spurgeon. Thank you so much for joining with us. We have a whole lot of other things on this website, including a lot of Spurgeon sermons, but so much more. I'll let you do the research today. Just look around. Seriously, you'll find some things that I think will bless you. Well, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and this audio is being released on the 18th of April, 2023. And Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.